There's a view going around this place that whenever uh, we divide up the preaching, whenever I'm sharing the preaching with other people, that I always give the hard passages to other people. Well, I'm doing this one tonight, okay? Wish me luck. Well, pray for me. That, that would be better. We're in 1 Timothy here. Uh, we're in chapter 2, the second half of the chapter. Um, if we could flick up the, the next slide there, Graham, let me remind you of this overall structure of the book. We had this slide up a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so we're in the middle of part 2 uh, this evening. Uh, there's a chiastic structure in the book. I'll not, I'll not labor all that again, but, but that's where we are in broad terms. And if we stick up the next slide, we see a breakdown of part two. Uh, we dealt with the first part there last time we met. Uh, we talked about a church that's gospel-centered, a place where we can pray for all people and preach to all people because God wants all people to be saved and because Jesus died for all people. So there's no limits uh, on the, the, the gospel and its scope in the lives of the people around us. A couple of weeks ago when we were looking at that material, we noticed how Paul's teaching here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, corresponded to false teaching in the, the opening chapter in chapter 1 and a little bit from chapter 6. So he chose to raise particular issues in chapter 2 precisely to counteract false teaching in chapter 1. The teaching was elitist, if you remember, in some of its forms. So Paul reminds us that the gospel is for all. The teaching in Ephesus had an inward focus. We recognize that. Paul reminds us that the gospel goes out to the whole world. And there seemed to be something about a a super spirituality or a higher godliness. Um, And the, the, the life that Paul calls the believers in Ephesus too is, is a, quite a, a down-to-earth, peaceful, quiet way of life in all godliness and holiness. So we tried to understand verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2 in light of what we'd read before our earlier studies in 1 Timothy. Now, I'm going to suggest this evening, right at the outset, that we continue with this same approach. If we continually try to understand Paul's teaching as being in response to a real situation in Ephesus, then we'll be much better off than if we just paddle around reading these strange-sounding phrases and immediately coming to our own conclusions. So let's, let's have an outline of tonight's passage. Graham, on the next slide, there, there are actually three things going on here. My sense is your mind will immediately have been drawn to, to some of the stuff, but you won't have noticed. There are three different things. Paul's talking about how men should pray, about how women should dress, and how women should act. Okay? Let's, let's talk a little bit about this before we go into the detail. I, I want to to say some things that help us have some confidence that this might work out and not be a total car crash, okay? In verse 8, he's actually developing further the the talk about prayer that we had been thinking about in verses 1 to 7. Verses 1 to 7 are about prayer, uh, and verse 8 continues to be about prayer. You'll notice then from verses 9 through to 15 are all 
focused on women. One verse for men, six verses for the women. Why would that be? Well, remember what we said just a moment ago. Our answer lies in the context of the Ephesian church. The false teachers were causing controversies and strife. So Paul's going to teach the men uh, to live in such a way that they don't encourage anger or disputing. That's a direct challenge to false teaching. Given that everything in chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, is in response to false teaching, we should probably expect that it's the same in verses 9 to 15. Uh, So let me try to show, actually, that that is the case. There are two passages in the Timothy correspondence where Paul focuses again on on women, where he really uh, makes that, uh, brings that to the forefront of his mind. And I thought I'd show you those quickly. So the passages are 1 Timothy 5. Maybe stick a finger in each of these. 1 Timothy 5 and then 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll give you a second to flick those up. By the way, we're not going to do a whole lot of small group work tonight. I looked at the material and I thought it it might not be the easiest stuff to do interactive discussions around. Uh, We might end up starting fights and stuff that I would have to I'd have to pick up the, the, the broken pieces. So, um, but, but I'll try to bring you to, to different parts of the text and keep you with me here. Let's start actually with the second of those two passages, 2 Timothy 3, 5 to 9. If you run your eye over that uh, part of the second letter to Timothy, it seems that there are false teachers at work here and that they're getting a hearing Uh, That's what Paul's describing here. He says they're getting a hearing among weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and who are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Okay. Flick back then to the 1 Timothy passage, 1 Timothy 5. This is in a passage where he's talking specifically about widows but he, he talks about some of these younger widows, and he says in chapter, sorry, chapter 5, verse 6, that they live for pleasure. Verse 13, that they have become idlers, gossips, and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. That's interesting. And then in the very next verse, he implies that these women are bringing the gospel into disrepute because he encourages them to live differently in order to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. The way they are living seems to be giving uh, an opportunity for slander of the Christian church and of Jesus Christ. He wants them to live differently. And then some of these women, he says, in verse 15, have already turned away to follow Satan. I show you that to show you that there's problems. Uh, There are problems with the, the women in Ephesus So the advice that he gives in chapter 5, you'll see advice there that women should marry, should have children, and should take care of their homes. That might well help us make sense of verse 15, uh, and we'll come back to that as we move our way through the passage. In the light of of what we've just read, some of those instructions about modest dress, uh, you might see that there's a context where those instructions might begin to make some sense. I just wanted to share that with you early to show you that there's a real context 
that Paul is addressing, and it, it'll give us some provisional sense uh, of, of these comments, these things that Paul is going to say. They're not as strange as they at first seem. I'm going to move through the passage now that we've done a little bit of introductory work. Look at verse 8 then. Paul's uh, directions to Timothy and for this church in Ephesus. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputation. He's been talking about prayer, verses 1 to 7, and he's still on the subject. So it's, it's as though he's saying, while I'm on the subject, as people gather, make sure that it's for prayer, not for anger or disputing. It's important that we understand what Paul's point is here. He's not saying that men should pray. He's assuming that. He's not saying that only men should pray or that they should only do it with their hands lifted up in the air. He's just recognizing that that was the cultural form of Judaism and early Christianity, that that's likely what was happening. And he's saying that when men do that, when they lift their hands in prayer, they ought to be holy hands. And that is that they ought to be people who aren't angry with one another or involved in disputes. How does a passage like that speak to us today? Well, you've probably already heard me say it. I'm, I don't think it says that only men should pray. It doesn't tell us I don't think that we should lift our hands in prayer. If it does, we've disobeyed it all of our church life so far. It's telling us a lot about the attitude of our heart when we come to prayer, that our hearts shouldn't be full of anger and that we shouldn't be fostering any dispute. That stuff about lifting our hands in prayer, that might sound culturally remote, but I'm sure you'll appreciate the idea of anger and dispute in the church can arise anywhere at any time with any level of intensity. Whenever that escalates and becomes an airing of a, a, our dirty linen in public, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of that very sad situation in, in Balna Hinch at the moment, Balna Hinch Congregational Church. We, we don't know the ins and outs of that, and I'm, I'm not really interested. What I'm, what I'm saying is the cause of the gospel and of the church of Jesus Christ is never enhanced by those sort of divisive, disputing uh, experiences among his people. When we're angry and when we're in dispute, we're not a pillar of the gospel, which is what God wants his people to be. So we've dealt with the first of our three sections. Um, I'm moving pretty quickly through the first two to leave me a bit more time for the last one. After speaking about how men should pray, Paul turns his attention to how women should dress. It's hard to be absolutely certain why he's raising that uh, uh, issue at this point. But we've already seen uh, here this evening, we've seen evidence elsewhere in the Timothy letters that there are problems about the conduct of some of the women in the Ephesian church. In chapter 5, verse 11, 
he talks about a time when younger widows' sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ. Uh, We noticed as well in 2 Timothy 3, he describes there some of the women in the Ephesian church loaded down with sins, swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Paul is addressing uh, some of these women in the church, and he chooses to focus on how they dress. As I say, it's not, not immediately obvious to us why he chooses to talk about their dress. But there's a large amount of evidence in both the Greek and in the Jewish cultures of the time that when a woman dressed up in the wrong kind of a way, she was understood to be acting in a, in a sexually provocative way. Because she was doing that, she was clearly showing disrespect for her husband. So for a wife to dress up um, inappropriately in public, it it wasn't far short of actual marital unfaithfulness. So you have one of the ancient writers saying, a wife who likes adornment is not faithful. That was how the culture of Paul and Timothy's time understood uh, the inappropriate dressing of women in public. So that's the culture that Paul's dealing with, and he urges the Christian women in that culture to act in a way that's going to bring glory to God. If there are to be pillars of the truth in Ephesus, then it won't be by dressing up like this. We've got to be careful here. Paul's not against the women in the Ephesian church paying attention to their appearance making themselves beautiful. He recognizes that they are beautiful and he wants them to go for it and to do all that they can to enhance their beauty. John Stott says there's no biblical warrant in these verses for women to neglect their appearance, conceal their beauty, or become dowdy and frumpish. The question is how a woman's beauty is to be seen and set forth. He says, Paul says here, it's not to be with braided hair, with gold or pearls or expensive clothes. He says they should dress modestly with decency and propriety with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. How does a passage like this speak to us today? Let me suggest that it's not by taking a first-century Near Eastern view of how women should dress, a a view of women's outfits, hairstyles, and jewelry. Instead, it has a lot to tell us of where a woman's beauty should really emanate from. A word for the women of Kirkpatrick Memorial. Set your hearts on the kind of beauty that Paul is advocating here. If you find yourself giving a huge proportion of your time, your money, and your energy into thinking about your outward appearance, ask yourself why that is. What's the motive? Why has that become such a preoccupation? Don't come to church or don't live your lives dressed up and made up with a view to catching the eye 
uh, of the, the passing males. Live your entire life clothed in a deeper beauty that comes when Jesus Christ transforms you. Set your hearts on being truly beautiful, not just in your appearance. A word for the men of Kirkpatrick Memorial. Can we learn to honor women for the kind of beauty that Paul's advocating here? If you haven't already done so, make a shift in your heart from being the kind of man who evaluates a woman purely on her external appearance. Learn to celebrate deep, beautiful, Christ-like qualities in the women around you. Help the women of our church family by calling something much, much deeper out of them than our superficial qualities of a tabloid culture. On how women should dress. So far, so good. We've managed to make sense of two of Paul's difficult teachings, but we're really only warming up. Um, this is where it gets, gets harder still. Let's look at these last verses in 11 to 15. They have to do with how women... Uh, are to be in the church community. Verses 9 and 10 really had to do with one problem among the women in Ephesus, some sort of immodesty on their part. Verses 11 to 15 have to do with something different, another problem. Uh, we could call it a, a, a rebellious streak, something about throwing off authority that's prompted Paul to write these words. Paul writes, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, first thing to notice here is that the women were part of public worship and were hearing the teaching. That is not something you should take for granted in a first century culture, and it's still not something you would take for granted in some traditional cultures today. While Paul assumes that the women will be part of the worshiping community and hearing whatever teaching's happening there, he's clear that the woman is to learn in quietness and submission. Notice he doesn't say in silence. The word translated as quietness here is the same as the word that's translated quiet and peaceful lives in verse 2 of the chapter. So it has more to do with attitude. And by the way, it's the same word that's translated wrongly in verse 12 as, as silence. There's no suggestion here that women weren't allowed to speak in the Ephesian church. But this is important. There's something important going on here. Since it's the first thing that Paul says in verse 11 and the last thing he says in verse 12 in these two verses, this seems to be the thrust of what he's saying because he repeats it. And it seems likely, in light of what we noticed earlier about the problems that Paul's identified with the women in Ephesus, that somehow he's against women being upfront, talking, you know, he used the phrase, saying things that shouldn't be said, being busybodies, saying things they ought not to. That's the phrase. So in verse 12, he picks up the three 
items from verse 11, and he elaborates them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and make this as clear as I can for you. It's going to take a few minutes, but, but stick with me, and hopefully we'll be rewarded with a good understanding of this text. In verse 11, Paul had said a woman should learn, and he develops that further then in verse 12 by saying, I do not permit a woman to teach. Those two go together, the learning and the teaching. Teaching remembers a big issue in Ephesus. That's what we said when we started looking at this letter. It's about teaching. It's about false teaching. Now, we need to slow down here and notice a few things. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, we see that women were prophesying in the church in Corinth. And that wasn't being checked. That was allowed to happen. There are other Bible passages which suggest that women shared in different forms of instruction in the church, uh, different of Paul's congregations that he established. So while it seems that in some cases, women were involved in some form of, of public sharing in Paul's gatherings, he's not encouraging that at this moment in Ephesus. And why might that be? Well, the word that's translated here as teaching most likely has to do with handling the Bible, handling Scripture. And as a consequence, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul doesn't want the women doing this work in Ephesus just now. Why is that? It's because some of them have been terribly deceived by the false teachers. The false teachers, Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 7, are the ones who want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. If that's the case, if, if their teaching is entirely off beam, and if the women of the church, or many of them have been influenced by this off beam teaching, then we can begin to understand why he doesn't want the women teaching in Ephesus in the public ministry of the church. A second elaboration. Paul uses the phrase in, in verse 11, he talks about full submission, and he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. That word, have authority, is used only once in the whole New Testament, and, and it's here. And it has a, a, a meaning, something along the lines of, of dominating or domineering. Now, again, in the light of the context where many of the women have been led astray by false teaching, it's hardly surprising that Paul doesn't want that teaching and that spirit to dominate in the community. A third elaboration. He talks about uh, quietness in verse 11, and he says in verse 12, she must be silent. I've already, I've already explained that that's a, a mistranslation. The word isn't silent. The word is of a quiet demeanor. So it's to, to, be, to be of a quiet demeanor, quiet disposition. And the picture that's coming together here, I think, seems remarkably consistent. There's some kind of disruptive behavior. It might have included boisterous support for false teaching. And Paul wants Timothy to stamp it out. He sent them to go after the, the false teachers themselves, but also to silence any women who've been influenced by the false teachers. So that's where we began here this evening. 
we were saying it's the false teaching in Ephesus that sets the context for all of this. So Paul's made his basic point in verses 11 and 12. He then, in verses 13 and 14, takes us to the biblical story to give us some sort of a basis uh, for some of what he's been saying. He refers to creation in verse 13. He says that Adam was formed first and then Eve. Paul is choosing to draw our attention to the priority of Adam over Eve in creation. It doesn't elaborate on it, just draws attention to it and moves on. He doesn't elaborate on that, but he does elaborate on the next point, and that is when he looks, comes to look at the fall. He says, Adam wasn't the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, you may know this, he talks about Adam as a representative of all mankind. So in Romans 5, he says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men. So in a different context, Paul's very happy to say Adam is the guy who brought sin into the world. So so bear that in mind as you read this Eve passage. But here he's talking about Eve and he's doing something similar. He's making Eve into a representative woman. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Why is he doing this? Why is he choosing to go to this part of the biblical story? I think it's because the fall is happening all over again in microcosm in Ephesus. Women are being deceived. As Eve was, so the women of Ephesus. False teachers are seducing the women. And we've already noticed in chapter 5, verse 15, who stands behind this? Some women have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. Do you see how some of the language here does make, does make sense when you bring the, the whole of Paul's thinking and theology together? In verse 15, Paul brings his instructions to a close, and he, he plays a blinder, doesn't he, just with that final verse? I mean, if, if he hasn't lost you so far, I think that that probably will do it for you. Paul says that the, women were, the woman was deceived and fell, fell into sin, but she, or women in general, will be saved. And how are they going to be saved? Through childbearing, he says. Now, can Paul really mean that? Commentators, I I love reading commentators on passages like this. It's good fun because they they have to come up with something. You know, they're the guys who are charging money to, to, to sell their commentaries. They've got to come up with something. So one guy says, yeah, what he means is that women will be kept safe through childbirth. Really? Is that anything like a universal experience of the human race? I don't think so. Another view that some of the commentators take is that women will be saved through the childbirth, the birth of the child, Jesus. Now, that's great because we believe that Jesus coming into the world, resulting in his sacrificial death and his resurrection, changed everything. That's how we're saved. But 
it's not what the passage says. It's not good. More likely, I think, is that what Paul has in mind here is that a woman's salvation from the sins brought about by their deception that we've been talking about is to be found in her being a model, godly woman known for her good deeds. And Paul's talked about that in chapter 5, verse 15. He tells us there what that lifestyle is. It includes marriage, bearing children, and managing their homes. Paul's basically saying, and and he uses the phrase in chapter uh, 2, verse 2, about these quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. He's pointing the women back from these contentious, deceived lives back to a healthy, normal, for them kind of a life. Now, that explanation I think is quite strong because it makes sense of what Paul's saying in 1 Timothy. It's pretty grim in terms of its theology. Is Paul really saying that salvation comes to women who are good wives, keep a good house, and and have children? No. If we read to the very end of verse 15, the end of the chapter, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Paul's talking here about Christian women. He's talking about women who have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation to be found in being a good wife, in being a good mother, a good homemaker. That would be salvation by works. The salvation Paul's talking about here is the salvation that he only ever talks about. Salvation by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's try to wrap this up. In the previous two cases of men praying without anger, of women dressing appropriately, I've taken a moment to try and answer the question, how does a passage like this speak to us today? Now, in this area of of women's roles, of how women are to act in the church, this, this is controversial. Uh, There are different views in the church in this, but nevertheless, I'm happy to let you in on my views on the matter, if they aren't already obvious, uh, from being in a congregation where I lead. First thing I'd say is that Paul's teachings here in 1 Timothy 2 need to be read in the light of the whole of Scripture. So when you come to these verses about the role of women in the church, we need to read them as part of God's great story of the equality of, of a man and a woman in the sight of God. God creates male and female. Jesus died to save men and women. We are adopted into God's family as his daughters and his sons as we trust in Jesus. His image, we're told, is on us. The Bible in its entirety maintains the equality of men and women. Let me say this about how we read a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 2. It seems to me there are two extremes we have to avoid. The first extreme is that of a rigid liberalism, or literalism, I should say. If we approach this text in a very rigid way, have a look at the text and just take it all on board. 
It means that only men will be praying in our churches only with their hands held up in the air. Women won't ever braid their hair. I'm not checking from here. I can't see uh, right down to the back. But women won't ever braid their hair. They'll never use gold. They'll never buy anything other than the cheapest clothes. They'll certainly not speak in a church gathering. Perhaps you see quite quickly some of the problems with that kind of approach. And and maybe you know some church communities that have tried to apply this kind of uh, rigid literalism. That's one extreme. There's another extreme, and that's a, a radical libertarianism. With this approach, we look at a text like this and we say, yeah, everything that Paul says there is entirely for first century Ephesus. It's a different culture than the one I live in. It has nothing to say to me. I'm at liberty to push it all to the side. And perhaps you can see where that kind of approach to this passage and others in Scripture might finally take us. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott suggests a third approach, what he calls cultural transposition. And with this approach, we have to work out which parts of what's being taught in Scripture are God's essential revelation, and that's never going to change, and which parts are the cultural expression which can and will change. If we can work that out, then we keep the former, the essential revelation, but we're free to transpose it from its original culture to our own. Let me give you an easy example in case uh, that was uh, hard to follow. Jesus' command to his disciples to wash one another's feet. Okay? If the literalist well, basically, he'll show up here tonight. He'll have his basin under his arm. And while I'm speaking, he'll be working his way around. He'll be asking you to slip, slip off your shoes because Jesus has said we're to wash one another's feet. That's a literalist. The libertarian might say, no, totally cultural. There's, no, there's nothing there. That, that passage may as well not be in Scripture. It has no substance for us. Whereas if we use this exercise of cultural, uh, what's the word, transposition, then we discern what's intrinsic in the command. What's intrinsic in that command? That no job is too low for Jesus or for those who follow him. And we transpose that into our culture. And what does it mean? It means that followers of Jesus Christ are the guys who don't mind washing dishes and cleaning loo's. Because we'll do the lowest thing in our culture, just as Jesus did in his. A couple more minutes and we're done. You probably don't realize it, but we've already been practicing cultural transposition in the applications that we made in the first couple of Paul's three commands. We said that Paul isn't telling us to lift up our hands in prayer, but he is talking to us about the attitude of our hearts when we gather to pray. We said that he's not forbidding braided hair or nice clothes, but he is telling a woman to pay attention to how she expresses her beauty and to do it in in the Christ-like qualities. What if we made one last cultural transposition 
when we thought about the role of women in the church. Might we not say that there is something permanent and irreversible about the complementary way in which God has created men and women? He's given some form of headship to men. By the way, for me, that's mostly about a responsibility that I can't lay down even if I wanted to. And the day-to-day expression, sorry, so there's a, a responsibility for men and an authority that women ought to respect. But the day-to-day expression of this, how it works itself out in our church communities will depend on the culture in which we live. So we're not bound to the culture of first century Ephesus. Women need not be silent in our gatherings. If God brings to us women whose gifts can be used to build up the community, to build up those men and women together, then I believe that we can and that we should be looking for ways for women to teach and to lead in the church. The servant leadership that they offer need not undermine the the authority and the responsibility given to men. I'm going to say I've been very much blessed by the, the leading and the serving of women here in Kirkpatrick Memorial and beyond. I'd better stop. And if you want to talk further, then let's have a cup of tea together later on. What about this material that we have read here this evening? I can't help but think the whole of chapter 2 hinges on chapter 2, verse 2. God's call on all these parties, these men and these women, is that we're asked to pray in verse 2 that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Paul's vision for the church is that our lives don't get in the way of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, that our lives, uh, Graham, the last slide, if you have it there, slide number five, this purpose that we keep coming back to in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul wants Timothy to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Everything that Paul cares about for the people, the men and the women of Ephesus, is that they might be that, the pillar of the truth, that they might be a community that holds high Jesus Christ and the gospel of his saving grace, that there's something about us and the way that we share life together that makes him visible and beautiful in the world. My prayer for us in Kirkpatrick Memorial women and men together, is that that would remain and always be our goal. Let's pray.